Welcome to the Warehouse Speaker Series, a knowledge sharing initiative created by Warehouse. Headquartered in York, Pennsylvania, Warehouse is an award-winning architecture and engineering design firm with over 40 years of experience in multiple building types in the Mid-Atlantic region. You can learn more about Warehouse on our website at www.warehouseae.com and that is spelled W-A-R-E-H-A-U-S-A-E.com. Thank you. My name is Matt Falvey, and I'm your host for today's episode. Today, we feature a conversation on the current supply chain management crisis and what we can do to mitigate some of the COVID pandemic and war-induced supply chain shortages and volatility. Our guest today is Matt Shatskin. Matt has been a logistics practitioner and academic for over 32 years. Currently, he is an assistant professor of supply chain operations management at the York College of Pennsylvania, where he teaches courses in supply chain management, logistics management, operations management, total quality management, and data-driven decision-making. Matt earned his PhD in transportation and logistics from North Dakota State University in 2014 and published the book, Understanding the Complexity of Emergency Supply Chains in 2017. Matt is also a retired Army Colonel with 28 years as a multifunctional logistician. During his service, Matt planned and executed logistics support to emergency operations in Iraq, New Orleans, and Haiti. So Matt, welcome. Really excited to have you as my guest today. And I thought we'd start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, what made you the person you are today from airborne ranger to college professor. Well, thanks for having me on uh, here, Matt. I appreciate it. Definitely my privilege. What made you the person I am today? Uh, a great upbringing, great parents, and definitely a uh, supportive family uh, to this point. Beyond that, really just uh kind of uh, enjoying what I was doing at the time. That's what I would say. Started out uh, over 32 years ago uh, out of Trinity University in San Antonio, commissioned into the Army, started out as an infantryman and was uh, what we call a detailed logistician. So went into multifunctional logistics back in 1992 and then uh, never a dull moment. So did that for 26 more years uh, including Iraq and uh, New Orleans after the earthquake, or excuse me, the hurricane, and then Haiti after the earthquake there. And then I uh, had to find something else to do upon retiring and found an opportunity at your college to teach and build upon what I had learned. So I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, first of all, thank you for your service. And certainly I can relate a lot of adventure, <laughs> sure. never a dull moment for sure, <laughs> yeah. especially in the 82nd Airborne Division, right? <laughs> hey, let's kind of give a little context to what supply chain is. So I don't know if you want to define it from your insight or just tie in the context. What in the world supply chain? Yeah, thank you. So just, to, and it's, it's commonly misunderstood and which is a challenge we have um, getting people into the major and getting people into the field. Uh, the simplest way I would put it is supply chain is all around us. Uh, we have two types of supply chains in business. And the one that is very intuitive, I think, for folks to grasp is the product supply chain. So right now, Matt, you and I, between the two of us, we're probably wearing probably upwards of 50 products. Uh, your glasses, your shirt, your belt, your headphones, 
and then we can get into hygiene products and all those kind of things. And all of those come from some sort of supply chain, which is simply described as all of the activities that are involved to bring that product to market mm. so that you as the customer, me as the customer can purchase it and use it. That's the product side. There's also the service side, which I, I, I think warehouse is in the service side from my understanding yeah. of what y'all do. And so the service side is a little bit more challenging for some people to get within 30 seconds. Um, but it's the same definition. It's all the activities that are involved to bring that service to market. And so um, when we think about what is the core of that, especially with services, it's what we call this thing called the transformation process, where something was not a product before, and now all of a sudden it is. Um, so we, with products, we call that manufacturing. We take various materials and put them into a product, and now we have a product. Yeah. We didn't have a guitar, now we have a guitar. We didn't have a chocolate chip cookie, and now we have a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> and with services, well, we didn't have a building, and now we have a building. Um, we didn't have a fixed automobile, and now we have a fixed automobile. We didn't have an air conditioning unit installed there, and now we do. And so that's that's really the simple definition of supply chain. We can further break it down into big chunks. We have sourcing. Where do we get the materials that we need? We have the heart of supply chain, in my opinion, which is the operations part. How do we accomplish that transformation of getting those materials into either serviced or finished good? And then, of course, we have the distribution. How do we get products out to where we need to be? With services, usually we don't have much distribution because we're kind of at the end of it. Once right. the building is built, we've, we've achieved the objective kind of thing. And then, of course, especially with products, but also with services, we have the whole marketing aspect, which is uh, how do we get that product to the right place at the right time? You know, around here, Old Bay is the thing. Down in San Antonio, Texas, everybody thinks Old Bay is something that, you know, is next to Corpus Christi or something like that. So marketing really does play a pivotal, critical role in making sure that that product is at the right time, at the right place, according to the market, um, so that we're successful. Yeah, yeah. And something we're going to dive into here, but something we all took for granted for quite some time, right? And now we have a complicated mess. Yeah. And supply chain logisticians at one time, they were equipped to deal with acts of God, weather, labor union strikes, fires, et cetera. But who in the world ever envisioned COVID? China's zero policy for COVID shutting down ports, locking things down. We have increased demand and supply and decreased supply on almost everything, it seems like. Yeah. Labor shortages. I, I also supply chain managers are resigning at, you know, or, or switching careers at record levels because of the stress that this thing's caused. Infrastructure issues, bottlenecks, of course, then for good measure, let's throw in Ukraine and Russia. And how about rare earth metals? I read that Ukraine is actually the largest exporter of neon, which is used in manufacturing for cut the lasers that cut and help make things and produce things. 
let alone wheat and some of the other uh, things that come out of that region. Uh, same with Russia. So I guess let's define the problem within the context of how we used to operate prior to this pandemic. Yeah, so uh, it's very good. I think in my view, part of the problem is that we, um, you know, we we really kind of got used to a model of operating almost to the point to which we maybe uh, internalized it or believed that this was the only way that an operation or a supply chain could be uh, performed. And so here's what I mean. So you and I kind of grew up a little bit in in environments of chaos. I mean, that's that's kind of what the military is really good at is dealing <laughs> with this. And so in places like the 82nd Airborne, that's the culture is that you should be able to grab your bag and go at any time. And if you're not OK with that, then you're probably not in the right occupation. And but commercial supply chain really likes its stability because with stability, we can uh, implement things like lean, we can reduce cost, we can meet demand, we can incur profit, we can uh, sustain quality, and we can build uh, market share and increase market share. But when you look at, at least academically, that's just an environment. And environments potentially are temporary. <laughs> And so COVID has really shown us that, oh, by the way, there are actually three other possible environments for supply chains. And the environment that we're in right now with COVID is what is academically called the agile um, environment. And so in this agile environment, you have a high degree of uncertainty in two big areas. One is you have a high degree of uncertainty on demand, demand for your product, demand for your services. You're not really sure. Uh, and then the other uh, side is you have a high degree of uncertainty with your supplier, either with the material they're supplying themselves or with the supplier's ability to provide that material. And so it's not just an academic exercise that, oh, we're in an agile environment. The importance of realizing we're in this environment is realizing the relevant strategies to deal with it. So one of the four environments that we've been in prior to COVID was the environment we love to be in on the commercial side, which is the environment of efficiency. And that is where lean works. That is where total quality management really works. In fact, we would almost be unwise not to pursue lean in those environments because we have certainty. We have certainty of demand, we have certainty of supply, and that's where we can really drive costs down and really preserve quality and increase market share and those kind of things. So the, the first thing is kind of, hey, you know, business is not as usual. And that's a blinding flash, I think, to everyone. But then the yeah. next step is, okay, so then what are the relevant strategies? So very simply, one of the relevant strategies about the agile environment 
is you have to build safety stock. And mm. the the idea of safety stock runs counter to where we've lived for the past couple decades. Yeah. You know, so when we say safety stock, immediately that we hear, oh, you're going to incur carrying costs. You're going to incur warehousing costs to store this material that you don't necessarily need. And and so some people who don't, well, it, at the face, this runs in the face of just in time and things like that. And so, you know, people don't like that. But the truth is to offset supplier uncertainty and to complete projects on time or ahead of time, well, it, you're probably going to need to build some safety stock. Uh, I'm not saying that you just, you know, give people a blank check and that you build piles and piles and mountains and mountains of safety stock. That's not what I'm saying. But you probably need some folks to pull out some models of probability and lead times and put some science to it. And these are all available and do it with a calculated eye that, hey, this is going to cost us. But, you know, it's kind of a trade. Do we not have the safety stock and then have these long lead times to the customer? I mean, and then we lose market share potentially, or, you know, we get, you know, we get everybody mad at us. So one of the, I guess, coming back to my point is, hey, this is not business as usual. Everybody knows that. We are in a different environment. Everybody knows that. But hey, there are strategies for dealing with this. What are those strategies? Do we have the people, the, you know, the, the, the wherewithal, the ability to employ these strategies and kind of get inside this risk? But oh, by the way, we're, we're going to be living with risk for a while and we right need, we need to start getting comfortable and competent with living inside this risk. We're not just going to ignore it. We're not going to be like chicken little. And that's, that's maybe where, you know, uh, it's been a while since we've been in this environment. So, you know, the, you know, the legacy, the, the people that are okay and comfortable with this, you know, they, that the maybe those are some skills and just some culture that maybe we need to kind of uh, rebuild on the fly if that makes if that makes sense yeah it makes total sense you and i emailed just very briefly on a article that we read huh, yeah you're seeing more about this is lean dead right right and you kind of touched on a little bit anything else you want to add on that what do you think i i do not think lean is dead by any 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 stretch and uh, i think that you know so we'll talk about lean but you know lean it, the quote that comes to mind that lean really was born out of was this quote necessity is the mother of invention mm. and so when you when you look at and i've been kind of in prep for today i've been reading this book called the machine that changed the world uh which is one of the great readings about lean um, and Taichi Ono, who was the production officer for Toyota back when lean really hit its stride. And Ono is hailed as a genius. 
One of the things that Ono did was develop this thing called single minute exchange of dies. And the plain English is that prior to Ono and Ford, of course, uh, Toyota's big competition was Ford. Ford would take days to change the dies necessary to change their production design. And so this Ford didn't really care because they had the volume and they could afford to take days to change over. But Ono did not, in Japan, post-World War II, he did not have that volume. He didn't have that requirement. And so he, necessity is the mother of invention, he said, we can't take days to change. So, Matt, he got it down to minutes. Interesting. And that is only one of his great contributions. So when I think about lean and when I think about the construction industry, I think about Okay, the big enemy is time. It's the material lead time. That's really the big enemy. So if a project, you still want to be within that time expectation to the customer, well, the time that has to be decreased is the time that you have materials to work with. Once you get those materials, you you have to reduce that time without reducing quality. And so that... That is the heart of lean. That's all the worker on the job. Hey, what is your process to put those girders together? What is your process to put that wall up? What is your process to put that? How in that great sponge of time can we squeeze that and squeeze waste out of that? And Ono, as as sure as many of our managers out there today, those are the guys to solve and gals to solve that problem just by watching and watching. And that's what Ono would do is he would stand in one spot and just watch and watch. And he would ask questions. Why do you have to go over there and do that? Why do you have, why are your tools way over there? Why? And he would just ask why, why, why? And what he found was, Hey, there's a lot of non-valued activity there. So, you know, I don't think lean is dead at all is actually, I think that, when you're looking at time being the enemy, the analysis is within the time that we control, where's there still waste? Because that is the time we have. Mm. If we can't control the lead time, okay, and we still have to influence that with materials coming in, right? what can we control within the time that we have? Another thing that comes to mind is, well, do we still really need all those materials? So it's kind of wild, but just to make a brief analogy, when I went to Haiti, we really gave a lot of thought to additive manufacturing. So for example, we would need just the tiniest little part, a nut, a bolt, and the lead time for it would be six days. Okay. And we started saying, well, why can't we just make our own bolt? You know, that, that technology that, that is possible so the question, it's kind of like Ono in that exchange of dies. If I'm so dependent and my project is at a standstill because of this material coming in, what if I could make that material myself? What if I didn't need that material anymore? Now, some of this, I'm sure there's an engineer somewhere getting mad at me for just even saying, <laughs> right? Because they're saying, hey, you're a supply chain guy. You have no clue what you're talking about. You're not an engineer. And I empathize with that. But again, necessity is the mother of invention. 
And if the weak point in our critical path is a material lead time, then then I'm I'm sure it's prudent for us to put brain power on. Is there a way we could either make that material in house and not de- be dependent on an upstream supply chain, or just change the process without compromising quality? And I keep coming back to that because. A lot of folks, I think, that don't understand, they go, oh, we'll just build it on the cheap. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Lean says. That's not what total quality management says. Building on the cheap is runs contrary. Building on the cheap means you're going to lose the market. So if that's what you want to do, well, then that's that's anybody can do that. <laughs> that's, that's not hard to do. The challenge is preserving quality, if not improving upon it. And so I did see something um, after you sent me that article, I saw another article that said something to the point of how businesses are investing a lot in kind of this idea, which is how how do we improve not necessarily just technology, but design processes to address some of these issues. Right, right. You know? address these challenges within our processes. But I do not I do not think lean is dead. I think that, you know, that the kind of challenge to all this is to identify where you have stability, exploit where you have stability, recognize where you do not have stability and the risk that comes with that and then continue to build measures to address that. And I guess a related is this idea of multi-sourcing. So, you know, the the TQM idea and also the lean idea is um, more of the T- total quality management idea is single source. This is classic total quality management. The idea behind single sourcing is if I have one supplier for a material, then I can build a strategic relationship with that supplier. I can communicate my dimensions of quality to that supplier. I can build mechanisms in place to ensure that they're meeting my aspects of quality over a long term. And I can also decrease variation in my process. So very simply, if I have two people that provide me rivets, then I run the risk that supplier A's rivet is slightly different than supplier B's rivet. Mm. And the, the problem with that variation is I get prob- I get variation downstream to the customer. So maybe I, I do one job for the customer and then I do another job and the jobs look slightly different. And maybe they're slightly different in durability and, and the things that are important to the customer. And the customer notices this. And then after a while, if it's, if it's off, if it's bad enough and upsetting enough to the customer, maybe the customer does tell me about it, maybe they don't, and maybe they choose someone else. And that's not a situation we want. We want quite the opposite. So the the idea there is that, well, if I go with the same supplier every time, then I can decrease that variation and I can avoid defective work and and work that has errors in it. Well, you know, in today's environment, that just might not be as easy to do. Right. So the the the, the problem with multi-source, or at least the challenge with multi-sourcing is that just from the get-go, 
internally to my company uh, within the purchasing department or whoever's working sourcing and the sourcing folks, they have to do more work. <laughs> they <laughs> from the get go, they have to do more work. It's no longer, hey, Matt, interface with supplier A and build that relationship. It's Matt interface with supplier A and B. And so you'd probably go, well, I need twice as many people to do that because I have volume coming in from A, I have volume coming in from B, I have meetings and audits with A, now I have meetings and audits with B. So you're essentially telling me to do twice as what I did. Mm. And I guess my short answer is, yeah, you have a point. <laughs> so I guess we need to hire more people or make sure we have the automation systems to track all that or, you know, and uh, you know, so that's the short answer. I guess the longer answer is, well, what is the cost of not doing that? So the cost potentially of not doing that is a situation we have, which is supplier uncertainty, potentially a loss of supplier quality, so potentially a sustained disruption on downstream supply chain activities. We still have all the crew together ready to complete that project, but we're still waiting on that container that's in the ocean of those materials that we need to complete the project. So the customer is going, when is this going to be done? We don't really have an answer. So that potentially is the cost of not putting the internal organizational structure in place to do multi-sourcing. Yeah, and you and I are seeing that just one example locally here with Harley-Davidson needs a part and now it's going to impact labor. Yeah. being laid off, et cetera. So what, what is the cost? Right on. Right. So can, in your opinion, do you think aggressively nearshoring or reshoring manufacturing can untangle some of this, if not all of it? I think so. I mean, you know, the, one of the classic approaches to addressing uncertainty is proximity. And you and I know this. Uh, again, yeah. this is, this is, and it's not just a military thing, but proximity, it doesn't necessarily solve all the issues, but it addresses a lot of things. So the idea of me getting something routinely from the Ukraine, well, there's a lot of things that could go wrong between here and the Ukraine. Routinely getting something from California, well, there's still a lot of things that could go wrong between here and California, but not as many. So you know, just kind of, I think physically, um, that if we were to look at probabilities of things going wrong, the closer we locate something to us, we decrease those probabilities, which is why, you know, we talked, you mentioned Harley. Harley has its suppliers literally down the street a lot mm -hmm. for that reason. And mm -hmm. I, and I think big companies, their attitude is, Hey, and, and when you look at big manufacturing operations, Often their suppliers are just about within an arm's length because they want, they also want the pulsed delivery to the factory. Yeah. And so it's, it's hard to deliver a just in time pulsed delivery to the factory in accordance with the production schedule. If you're eight hours away, because we have traffic, we have weather, we have all those things that could creep in. But if you're just down the street, it's a reasonable expectation to say, Hey, I need 200 of these on the production floor at nine o'clock every day. And that's, 
that's we can we can pretty much count on that being happen um or that happening the um you know there's it's one of these things that keeps coming back to mind is that um just like that article i saw the other day to get through this it i i think companies are going to have to pay to play so it's it's if if you still want that market share that you've had you're you're going to have to again (laughs) realize that you're in a different environment and we're we're going to have to pay a little bit in terms of internal cost to preserve market share, preserve quality. And so what do I mean? Well, we didn't usually have supplier A. We didn't usually have a supplier in the United States because it costs more. But we're going to have to allocate that money to um, start that relationship. Heck, we might even have to build that relationship. And, and that's kind of the frustrating thing is that if we didn't have, you know, if we didn't have a supplier in the United States, well, maybe we have to, maybe we have to stand one up. I don't know. And and man, we hadn't planned on doing that. That's money that, where's that money come from? And we may take a loss of spending money that way for a couple years. The other thing, Matt, that's probably frustrating to a lot of people about this is it's just kind of a habit. So, again, you know, military operations are pretty much graded on effectiveness. Kind of go in, get the job done, hopefully don't break the bank. But there's not a whole lot of folks running around saying, hey, you spent too much money at the tactical level saying you spent too much money on this or that. On the commercial side, it's quite the opposite. So... Uh, this whole idea that, hey, we have to do some things that are are kind of contrary to what we used to do. It's kind of like insurance. You and I spend money every every month on insurance, hoping that we don't get into an accident. And legally, we're required to do that. If we didn't have it, we couldn't drive. But this kind of insurance is like, well, you don't really have to do that. <laughs> Hmm. And so it's kind of frustrating. It's like, wait a minute, I'm spending money on a supplier that I really don't want to use if I didn't have to. I'm spending money on safety stock that I really don't want to have. Right. But what's but what's the cost of not having that? Yeah. Right. And and so in a perfect world, if you had a perfect supplier with consistent lead time, and you had consistent downstream demand, well, then you don't need safety stock. And I've seen places where I would I would kind of look at what they were doing, and I'm like, I don't know why you have all the safety stock built up. You have trucks coming in every day, turning materials. You don't really need all this stuff over here. And so it's, it's kind of, you have to pay to play a little bit, yeah. it, it, at least in the interim. Uh, you have to, and the, I think the big thing is, realizing the change that must occur i mean there's been ken blanchard wrote this book who moved my cheese it's kind of cliche <laughs> you know i know you've right, seen it right, but it, right. It, it, these mouse mice in a maze and this one's like hey our food isn't there anymore and the other mouse is like well i'm going to stay here until my food comes back and and the, the second mouse is like dude i'm going to go find our food because we're <laughs> going to die and that's kind of this thing is is you got to kind of think about where did the food go and 
if we're in this agile environment, well, maybe we need safety stock. Maybe we need multi-sourcing. Maybe we have to invest in partners that we might not have invested before. Maybe we have to contribute to nearshoring. We have to reduce that uncertainty. We have to address this uncertainty somehow. Yeah. And, and it might strike many folks as a little bit redundant. I mean, you and I did stuff that was crazy redundant because our operations were graded on effectiveness and we didn't have somebody telling us, hey, that costs too much to make that so, you know, redundant. Mm -hmm. And redundant is not, you know, I mean, when you look at lean and things like that, the idea is to drive out redundancy, mm -hmm. to simplify things. Um, but again, lean is built on conditions of stability. Yeah. So where stability is, is not necessarily present, you know, it, it, we might, you know, just kind of have to, to realize, okay, what do we need to do? Maybe we need multi-sourcing. Maybe we need safety stock. Maybe we need these things that cost a little bit that we don't necessarily want to do, but the, the, the bigger cost is, is losing, losing our customers. Yeah, or these egregious miles of cargo ship. I, I was at a presentation about two weeks ago listening to an economist, and I think that 30-mile 30 30 mile long line out on the West Coast going into Long Beach, et cetera, is now down to only 16 miles, right? So yeah. there's all types of costs. You're spot on. Yeah. So within a construction field, what might you see – if you haven't seen some already, but what might you see as some best practices that a, a construction general contractor could look at for managing supply chain volatility in construction? Yeah, so I would, you know, there's a lot that comes to mind. Um, when I think about construction, to me, it is is kind of the classic project management, and project management is all about what you and I used to call the long pole in the tent, um, <laughs> which, you know, in, in plain English is, what it, what is that critical path? What is the aspect of this from start to finish that if we don't do it on time, it's going to break the project? Um, it's just going to like a house of cards. So that doesn't go away at all. To me, that's even more that's even more critical in these times to have that. And from my understanding, too, of construction is is because of all the people involved and the general contractors and the tradesmen is collaboration, coordination and communication has to happen on a daily basis towards that project management and that critical path. So, you know, first step is gathering all the players. Second step is having that, what is the critical path? Where can we delay things that would otherwise, um, you know, incur unnecessary costs, but what has to be done on time? Um, and what do we have to communicate about? What is, what is really important? And the other thing too is, again, what we talked about earlier, when we talk about, and there's, you know, there's a practice called value stream mapping, which is really, I think, critical in lean as well as in project management and probably in construction as well, which is you have different types of activities in an operation. You have non-value activity, 
a non-value added activity, certain things that maybe have to happen, but they're not really value to the customer. Okay, so the, the customer wants a, a durable building that does what it they need it to do. But there are certain things that have to happen for that building to exist that aren't necessarily value added to the customer directly. So that's non-value added activity. And how can we take, reduce that time? And then, you know, things like reducing the amount of scrap that we have because scrap is waste. Uh, that's another big Ono lean kind of thing is if I can reduce the amount of scrap, I can lower my cost. I cannot pass that to the customer. I could potentially even reduce the customer, my price to the customer, which would make a happy customer, <laughs> especially in who's going to turn that down if they have the same quality. I mean, you have people lining up at the door. And then particularly with construction, how can I repurpose that material? So, you know, if I'm going to have scrap, which I'm going to, how can I either turn it to a new job, turn it to the present job, or, you know, recycle it to reduce my internal cost? And again, I don't, I don't think that certainly none of that goes away. I would think even more so that has to happen yeah. Because that's really, you know, that was the driver of Ono in the first place. Ono, when Ono modeled how to make profit under lean, so so kind of prior to Ono or, or non-lean kind of ways of modeling profit, in my words, is essentially, well, we figure out what it costs us to make a car. We figure out how much profit we want to make. And so that translates to the price we charge the customer. Mm. And so if our internal costs increase for some reason, let's say I get, I need steel to make cars and then uh, I get a tariff, uh, my supplier gets a tariff and so I have to pay taxes or something like that, or my internal costs goes up, I'm just going to pass it off to you. So Matt, you, you know, yesterday I charged you $500 per car. Well, today I'm just going to charge you 700 because my costs went up. So I'm just going to pass it to you. Ono said, we can't do that. Ono said, we cannot do that. Ford could probably do that, but we can't do that because we don't have enough market and we don't have that much of a demand. And so we'll get beat out. So Ono said, we're just going to fix the price. We're going to fix it. So Matt, if I'm charging you 500 today, that cost is, that price to you is going to remain 500. And so when you do the math, the only way you can make profit is to decrease your internal costs under that model, which is exactly what Ono wanted. <laughs> he, he, he didn't want to give his team any choice to be wasteful. And so when you're backed into a corner and the only way that you can continue to make profit is by lowering your costs, you'll find ways to do it. And uh, the, the, the big thing is to, to not cut corners to still preserve quality which is what Ono said. He said, we're not going to cut corners. We're still, we have to preserve quality, the quality that we're giving right now, because in Japan, kind of up to that time, it had not so great a reputation on quality. Stuff would break. And so they really, with Ono, they reversed that to where Japan was a leader in the industry for quality. So to me, going back to the construction field, I'm like, that's, my thought is, you know, 
that's that has to happen. That's that's the other necessity now, which is with all this uncertainty that you have, the aspects of the operation that you do control, which is the actual once you get the materials, you do control that. You do control how the building is built. And so and when I say control, I don't mean in a micromanaging way. I mean in right. all the things that made it work up to this point, which was the collaboration, which was the getting the best ideas, the culture of the team. Because, you know, we know that micromanagement and construction is probably not the best way to go because that that worker that's been putting up that wall 40 times needs to be empowered. Hey, is there a better way to put this wall up? Well, yeah, this, that, and the other thing. Well, you know, we still want to encourage that so that we can have this culture of problem solvers to reduce time within the activities that we can control short of the volatile lead times and uncertain lead times on material. Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate your insight on that. Fascinating. So before we get into some final uh, general questions, talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about rare earth metals. When we first spoke, you had some interesting insight, which I think would be relevant for a number of reasons, if you don't mind sharing a little bit of that. Yeah, so um, certainly. Uh, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm not the expert. I'm not, I'm not the expert on any of this stuff. But uh, my understanding of rare earth metals, so I, I did a tiny little poking around on this, and I guess the overall idea is, and it, and it runs a little counter to, well, why don't we just nearshore, you know, X, Y, Z, kind of, and without getting uh, into politics or, or things like that, the, the reality of some things is that when we go all the way up the supply chain to the source, and rare earth metals is a source of certain technologies that are prevalent in today's society, specifically with cell phones. Certain materials coming out of the ground are more prevalent in places in the world than others. Quite simply, um, rare earth metals are a family of 17 rare metals that provide the technology for things like cell phones and ironically, radar defense systems and, and other defense <laughs> systems. And so the last time I looked, China, in terms of their rare earths, metals, I guess you would say um, inventory or availability of within their, you know, the ground is and their mines is about 44 million compared to 1 million in the United States. Wow. So. Uh, what China does is, or has done, is manufactured that into technology and then gained proprietary rights to those technologies. And many of those technologies are in the phones that you and I operate. Mm. So that's kind of our starting point. And so when we say, well, let's just nearshore that, well, I don't even know what the amount of time is that that would take. Yeah. And I'm sure it's 44 million to one. I guess the question then becomes, well, how sooner would we deplete that one million? So it, it's 
it's not that we can't. It's it's certainly I'm sure that many people have looked at that. But I guess my point is that it's not always about, you know, in some instances when we look at materials, I think it is about, I guess, to some aspect, convenience, cost, and I suppose opportunity for countries, countries like Nike. When you look at Nike's supply chain, it's actually quite interesting. I would say that I think the last time I looked, and this is all open source, 60 to 70% of their manufacturing is in the Far East. Wow. 60 to 70%, if not more, of their distribution is in the United States. Hmm. In fact, around Tennessee, of all places, they have like four to five distributions, I th- distribution centers in Tennessee. It's actually something to do with Elvis, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but it, the the point is that there's a reason for that. And I don't want to get into, you know, uh, the different sides of that. But folks have jobs in the Far East uh, that are getting paid by Nike. And mm. so that helps their economy. When we talk about rare earth metals, to me, it's a little bit of a different story, which is that's where we're at just geographically and and with the way that the earth structurally is that's where those suppositories are physically and so i don't really know how many people like the fact that possibly technology in our radar systems comes from china that always kind of made me scratch my head a little bit you know <laughs> but that's kind of where we're at that's that's kind of the opening conversation. So to reverse that or change that, I guess in some aspects of supply chain, that that's kind of a Snickers bar, what I call a Snickers bar <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing. It's like, wow, that, you know, um, and there's probably a lot of folks that are going to, you know, they're like, well, it's like anything else. How long is, quote, COVID really is the ripple of COVID going to last? Or could we just ride it out kind of kind of thing? Of course, closer to home than not necessarily cell phones, but definitely radars, is that rare earth materials are in computer chips, which are in cars. And this really brought the auto industry to their knees and, you know, had had to shut down factories because of availability of computer chips and and things like that. So it. And and it I think it's still the auto industry really hasn't recovered because of that. Inventory is not in terms of retail inventory is nothing like it used to be. You want a car, you're you're pretty much gonna have to settle on what they've got as well as the sticker that's on the car. And yeah, that's, that's right. just you know, that's just where we're at right now. So it it uh Toyota kind of buffered that a little bit because they happen to have, ironically, a safety stock of computer chips. But they didn't have a a record-breaking year on auto sales either. It just kind of got them a little bit. Um, and I think this was last year, maybe this past fall, um, they beat GMC on Ford because of that. But it nobody at Toyota was high-fiving and saying, hey, we had this great year compared to how they did five years ago and 10 years ago. So things like rare earth metals – I think kind of expose the reality of not necessarily globalization, but just that, hey, 
there are certain things in certain products that can't be sourced from anywhere but there without some other new kind of way. And what that way is, I don't know. That probably is going to take a lot of brain power. Right. right. If it's even possible, you know, and things like the cell phone industry, we've gotten so used to our cell phones, you know, society essentially operates around cell phones. But, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's many times throughout history, people have said there is no other way. And it turned out there was another way, Mm. you know, Mm. yeah. Um, but it, you know, it, it, it probably, it's probably is going to take a while to, to, to do those things. But like I said, you know, times of crisis, great crisis, uh, have a tendency to lead to innovation. Yep. Right on. Well, I'll tell you, this has been great, really insightful. Your college is very fortunate to have you. You combine <laughs> the uh, real world, real world experience with academia, right? You've lived it. You've seen this stuff work or not work. So really a fortunate resource for us locally and, and the college. Any any closing thoughts or maybe a thesis I didn't ask you about or, or you want to touch on? Um, you know, I, I think uh, I think this has been great. And again, I, I certainly appreciate you reaching out and this opportunity um, for us to chat a little bit. I think it's funny as, as I kind of prepared for this, um, I think it comes back to those four quadrants and educating, of course, my, that's my business these days is educating folks, uh, not just for the sake of education, as you described, but for the, the purpose of value contribution through application. Mm. And it, you want to educate folks with relevance. I mean, I think that's our greatest charter. So I don't, you're, you're a jujitsu guy. I don't, I don't want to talk to you and spend time with you on the mat training you for something that you're not going to encounter because eventually you figure that out and you go, this is kind of a waste of my time. (laughs) But, but I think, you know, towards this topic, um, what, as I look to our coming school year, I am thinking a lot about how do I develop our future professionals for this environment of uncertainty? Yeah. And to me that, I need to talk to them about lean and TQM and all of those things that are really, really do well. And I want to sharpen them on those things, but I also want to take them out into those other quadrants and build them. I think I would be happy if I could build them to be comfortable with that uncertainty with, Hey, um, we are going to have to do some things that are a little bit messy that are a little bit more expensive than we would otherwise desire and that potentially are a little bit more redundant to employ relevant strategies to offset the uncertainty and still provide value Mm -hmm. to the market and so that that to me, um, I'm like, well, Matt, that's the weight that's on the bar. That's if you can even uh, come close to that, that's where you personally would provide value. Um, because what I don't want students to think is that, oh, life is this nice, comfortable world. Well, all the conditions are set for me to optimize 
everything, reduce cost, enjoy profit, meet customer fulfillment. And uh, it's like, you know, uh, it, it, things are going to be a little more messy than that. And what I don't want is to be part of this growing percentage of folks who leave the field because it is an exciting field. Yeah. I, it's a great field, never a dull moment in my mind, which is the, the reason why I stayed with it uh, for so long. Um, but I, I think if, if, if anyone has an expectation of what it's going to be, uh, then and, uh, and it, that's mismatched with the reality, that's, that's what I need to um, prepare. It, it's nothing yeah. different than what we've always done. It's all about preparing people um, so that they can be, they can reach their definition of success. So that's, that's kind of what my near-term vision and charter really is, is, hey, uh, I've got to educate and develop folks to be comfortable in all of those four quadrants so that they can employ the relevant strategies and provide value. That's awesome. Well, we'll we will certainly post, of course, your bio and contact information, but if you'd like to share with the audience how they can get in touch with you or where they can go to find you or learn more about the, the program that you teach, go ahead. Yeah, certainly. So I, obviously everyone knows LinkedIn. I'm out there on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me. Um, and if there's a way I can help, uh, I certainly would look forward to that. If you're on Instagram, I do a lot of colorful things on Instagram. Uh, to try to stay relevant uh, with our students. And, and they're the, really the ones that are, I call them warriors because I never really liked the term students. And to me, it's a war on knowledge. You either have knowledge or you're in the pursuit of it or you don't have it and you kind of wonder what the heck is going on. So I do a lot of fun stuff. Uh, folks can find me, Matt Shatskin, on Instagram. But if there's a way that I can... I can help uh, or learn or any of that. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to all of that. And again, appreciate our time and this opportunity today. It's been great. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. This has been great. I certainly learned enough. Maybe I could help teach, uh, be an adjunct professor with the knowledge you shared. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, thanks again, Matt. Really, really appreciate it and look forward to catching up soon. Yeah, I'm outstanding. Thanks, Matt. Take care. This concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening to another Warehouse Speaker Series podcast. We hope that you found our knowledge sharing session insightful and relevant. We look forward to our next episode. If you would like to speak to us or share feedback, please email us at info at warehouseae.com. Until next time, stay healthy, everybody.